Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. And it happened after these things that God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take pray, your son, your only one, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Moriah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall show you. And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took his two lads with him and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the offering and rose and went to the place that God had said to him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from afar. And Abraham said to his lads, Sit you here with the donkey and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood for the offering and put it on Isaac, his son, and he took his hand, the fire, and the cleaver. And the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Here's the fire and the wood, but where's the sheep for the offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for the offering, my son. And the two of them went together, and they came to the place that God had said to him. And God built there an altar, and Abraham built there an altar and laid out the wood and bound Isaac his son and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the cleaver to slaughter his son. And the Lord's messenger called out to him from the heavens and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. And he said, Do not reach out your hand against the lad, and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, and you have not held back your son, your only one, from me. And Abraham raised his eyes, and look, a ram was caught in the thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh-Yireh. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord there is sight. And the Lord's messenger called out to Abraham once again from the heavens, and he said, By my own self I swear, declares the Lord, that because you have done this thing and not held back your son, your only one, I will greatly bless you and will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and as the sand on the shore of the sea, and your seed shall take hold of its enemy's gate. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed through your seed because you have listened to my voice. The word of the Lord. Has your dad ever done anything to you to make it so like it was sort of hard to trust him after that? <laughs> yeah, it's pretty common, I think. I mean, it's an interesting story. You can it's fascinating. It raises some questions, sort of goes without saying. The rabbis say that this, this story, the Akidah, is called in Hebrew, um, 
which means to bind, like binding Isaac, the rabbis say that this story, this event, sort of casts a bit of a shadow over the entire rest of the Torah. It's something that no matter what happens, it's hard to sort of get past this for anybody in the narrative. If the narrative can't quite get this out of the back of its mind, it's always there. It begins abruptly and then proceeds starkly to a point where both God and our protagonists are called into question, where the goodness of both our God and our Father are called into question. Who would ask such a thing? Who would consent to such a thing? And it happened that God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go forth to the land of Morah and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. This text is stark. The text is silent when it comes to any complexity in Abraham's response. It doesn't say, and with a heavy heart, or with sadness, or with horror, he responded to the Lord's request, only that he rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, took his two lads with him, and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the offering, And you know, the thing that really gets me in that last verse, the thing that I really can't get past is it's those two lads. I mean, lads, what seems a little bit out of place to me. I know it's a translation issue, and I know this is a very kind of like heavy moment, but it's distracting. It's like one of the gravest moments in human history. God just asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son from whom God had promised to give him many descendants. And Abraham, starkly without any comment or protest, has agreed to rise early in the morning, load his donkey with wood for the sacrificial fire, the knife for the sacrifice, and then decides to bring along two little lads. It's just his heart just throws me out of the story completely. I don't know why. I'm sorry. It's just... Like these little Irish guys or little, little wee lads, all for the sacrifice of the only promise of the future of the race. It, it. Yeah, I know there's other translations. Um, I'm using this Robert Alter translation that Ben just read from. Um, it's just Robert Alter's translation of the first five books of Moses. I use it because it's incredible. It always leads me down paths I never would go, and I find things in that text that I never find in other translations. It's incredible. But here, Bobby, it kind of trips me up with these two wee little Irish lads that go along with Abraham when he sacrificed his son to God. Okay. In all truth, they probably weren't Irish. I mean, there are, there are other translations. The, the New International Version translates the phrase to servants. That makes sense. Um, they went along to help haul stuff and tend to the donkeys or whatever. The Jerusalem Bible, it's the official Catholic translation, says uh, two of the fairest young boys. Maybe that's worse than lads. I don't know. Um, 
Um, the New King James says uh, two of his best young men. I don't know. The LDS translation says just two young men on bikes. Um, I don't know. No, I don't know why I'm stopping here. I don't know why this is hanging me up so much. Um, why and this is bothering me here. It's just a small thing. Maybe this is just it. Maybe I just want to stay here. I don't want to. I don't want to. I want to stay here. I don't want to let Abraham finish packing that donkey. I'd just rather stay here and make jokes about the lads. I don't want him to finish packing the donkey so we can set off and explore the philicidal pseudo-masochistic relationship between our God and the father of our faith. But forward we must go, because that is where the text goes. And we must always follow the text, or we will never get lost. They head out into the wilderness for three days, and then Abraham lifts up his eyes, and he sees the place where God is calling him to. The text says, and I quote, Abraham says to his lads, sit here with the donkey, and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. I know I said I was moving on from the lads, but they show up again. The translation from the English word, for the, the translation for the English word lads, better carries the sense of the young, a young boy who is thought fondly of. That's what the original Hebrew sort of gets at. So lads is a better translation than servant or fairest young boy or best young men or young men with bikes. It's better. It's just interesting to me that the text refers to those accompanying Abraham as lads, and then Abraham refers to his only son whom he loves, Isaac, as the lad. It seems to be too much in the first case and not quite enough in the second. And Abraham says to his lads, sit here with the donkey and let me and the lad walk ahead and let us worship and return to you. I guess I'll do that too. Let us leave the lads behind and go with Abraham and the lad, his only son, whom he loves, Isaac. Isaac carries the wood bound on his back that soon he will be bound and laid upon by his father at the command of God. Stark. The narrative is stark. They are walking together in the wasteland, the father and the son, like something out of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, except that seems to be a more compassionate narrative. Isaac breaks the silence. Father, he asks. I'm here, Abraham replies. Isaac asks, we have the wood, we have the fire, and we have the knife, but where is the sheep for the sacrifice? Abraham doesn't turn his head. He doesn't look at the lad. God will provide the sacrifice. And the two fall silent again. Were there ever more insidious words of comfort spoken? God will provide the sacrifice left hanging in the air for them both to get used to. Isaac did not ask out of concern that his father has forgotten something. His father does not forget things. The lad asks out of suspicion, out of fear. When they reach that place, Isaac builds the fire, or Abraham builds the fire, and Abraham 
binds his son Isaac and places him on the wood. Isaac is silent. At least the text is silent. Isaac is silent. Has he given himself to this? Does he blindly trust that his father, what his father said, that the Lord will provide some sacrifice other than him, even though he seems to be the one bound and placed on the altar, the fire? Or has it gone beyond anything he can say? His father lifts up the cleaver, and an angel of the Lord calls out to him, Halt! And he sees a ram with his horn caught in a thicket. And he frees him, and he sacrifices the ram on the fire. And Abraham, Isaac, the, the, the whole text never tells us that he was unbound. He sits there and watches his father with the cleaver carve up that ram, shuddering with every cut. And then the text tells us that Abraham left and rejoined the lads. Isaac still sitting there, bound, watching the last pieces of fat sizzle. This is a weird, weird book. I mean, as you know, we've been doing this, this alternative lectionary this year where we've been finding, because it seems like this text from Genesis on pushes at this promise of making a great nation out of nothing, out of building a great people, out of building something great from nothing. But it is always collapsing and it is always undoing itself. And you don't know if God is cruel or playing tricks. He builds a paradise and he puts these two beautiful people in it and then sets them up to screw it all up and kicks them out. He lets these people go out. He says, be fruitful and multiply. They just go crazy and he can't take it anymore and it's just too much for him. And he takes a flood and he wipes them all out. He lets them go. After that, they go, they, they all get together. They're just learning. They're, they're creole of one language. They create this great city with this huge tower that they're building all the way so they can reach God. God wipes it out. What is this? What is this, what is this here? Um, are we only supposed to be kind of successful? Like, God, was he thinking, I was trying to create middle management. That's all I wanted. I did not want this, you know, before we all, like, you know, yeah. That's, some people say the church is behind Prozac. Really, it's just even everybody out. That's just all we need. Greatness? No. Striving ideas? Passion? I don't know. For some reason, you'd think that's what, it seems like that's what God likes, but... 
crazy. So we're trying to follow these streams here. And we see here we have Abraham. We're trying to just look at what these different kinds of texts mean and, and just try and ask the question, why are these two conflicting threads running through the text? And, and what that possibly could mean. And so here we just find another example of that, where God calls Abraham out to says, um, come out and go into this land where I'll tell you. And I will make a great nation of you, and you will have many children, and uh, the whole world will be blessed by um, your offspring. And they're barren. They can't have children. <laughs> How funny. Um, but then, you know, after, you know, a lot of, you know, having sex with slaves and stuff like that, um, he eventually, his wife gets pregnant, Sarah gets pregnant, and they have a child. So this is possible now. This promise that God gave to them is possible. And then God says, wait, that only son of yours, I want you to kill him for me. Yeah. So, yeah, that's where we find ourselves. <laughs> so we thought it might be interesting to explore why the hell we continue to read this. Um, so, yeah, what happens next, right? God goes down, right? Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Abraham goes down. The text tells us Abraham then returned to the servant lads, and they got up and they traveled to Beersheba, and Abraham settled there in Beersheba. Where is Isaac? Where is Isaac? Isaac is not nowhere to be found. Isaac does not come. They're one lad short. Where, where he goes back to the two lads, and Isaac isn't with them. As a matter of fact, Isaac doesn't show up again for like two long chapters. He doesn't show up again until he's an adult and he's finding his wife, Rebecca. Where is he? Where does he grow up? You know? Um, there's the, the rabbis tell a lot of different stories about what happens. But first of all, let's jump ahead. When we find Isaac and... Um, well, the first, the first place they think that Isaac, they say instead of coming home with Abraham, which we know that he didn't because it's not in the text, they say, the rabbis say, well, Isaac left directly. This was always part of the plan. He left directly and he went and studied at this yeshiva, this house of study with um, Shem, who was uh, Noah's son. And he studied there until he was ready to go and um, take his wife uh, Rebecca, I know you're doing the math in your head, for those of you who know Old Testament genealogy, which I'm sure is most of you. Um, Shem, the son of Noah, would have to be very, very old. <laughs> Super old. But the rabbis did say that he had this yeshiva to, um, you know, help them correctly and learn and interpret Torah, which as far as I know, it seems like they were still living the story before it was written, but... They only stayed like three pages to study at that point, you know, because I mean, not a lot had happened so far. Um, so, but a lot of people, that's where they say, um, that's where they say that he was. Um, 
a lot of different midrash trying to explain what happened to him. Um, it gets a little bit kind of darker, like around the Crusades, the 1200s. Um, so the Christians were coming, and they would take whole Jewish families and make them all convert, um, and or they would would kill them, and some parents, Jewish parents, thought that it would be better to kill their children than to have them convert and live out their life with these infidels and cruel people. And the rabbis began to tell these stories that just like Isaac, Abraham sacrificed him to God at the right time. And only later on, when it was safe, he resurrected him and gave him his wife, Rebekah. So Abraham did kill him, but God resurrected him later. So if during the Crusades you do kill your children, just like Isaac, they'll be resurrected when the oppression ends. Talk about adding darkness to darkness. I came across this Rabbi Killinger. He asked this question, where did Isaac go? Where did Isaac go? He says, you know, we don't hear about Isaac until he meets Rebecca for the first time. And when we see it um, for a couple, verse, a couple chapters later, it said, now Isaac was coming from the direction of Ber Lachai Rai for he was living in the Negev. So the Torah tells us where Isaac had been. He'd been living in the Ber Lachai Rai. And what is that, you ask? Where is that? We have actually heard about it before. Debbie talked about it last week. Because Sarah, who was Hagar, um, Sarah, slave Hagar, was the slave I mentioned earlier, um, that um, Abraham first impregnated, with this child Ishmael, before she, um, Ishmael was born, she ran off because Sarah was being cruel to her. She ran off and uh, she ran off to this place and she cried out to God and God heard her and sat down and saw her and heard her and there was this well came up. And so Sarah named it Bera, I mean, Hagar named it Bera Lakai Roy, the place where God sees me and knows me. And then she goes back, and then, of course, she gets driven out again. And this rabbi suggests then, when um, finally Hagar and Ishmael are driven out, they go back there to live at that well. And the text tells us that that's when he comes to find um, Rebecca, that's where he's coming from. The text tells us where he was. Because his mother, Sarah, had died, Isaac went and was raised by Hagar with his brother, Ishmael, at this well, at this place where God had come to Hagar to heal her, now brings healing to Isaac for the trauma that he experienced, a place of peace. Even, um, we read in the Quran, Debbie told us last week, that Abraham made frequent visits there. 
So this was a place that somehow seemed outside of the striving and the moving forward and the building of great nations and all the um, really trauma and damage that's done in the wake of that kind of movement. A place where there's healing, where something can, where peace can be, where you can be seen and known by God. Building empires, hierarchies, orthodoxies, and institutions, they always require sacrifices. Sacrifices and victims, mostly unintended. But insisting on up and over and against the great and the many, all that creates trauma, and trauma that needs to be worked through and healed. And this text that moves forward with this promise of greatness, all the while dismantling the presumed definition of greatness, also seems to provide images or provide hints of how we can be healed from that trauma of living in the midst of this conflict. This trauma affects everyone. It even seems to affect God in this story. All through before this, God and Abraham are talking all the time, are intimate. And after God makes this command, for whatever reason we do not know, he never talks to Abraham again. But maybe in this place of peace, even God can be healed. 